Happy New Year and welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, January 3rd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. 2019 is just days old, and already we've seen the biggest farmer merger deal in nearly a decade. Bristol-Myers Squibb is buying Celgene. Our new STAT colleague, Matt Harper, is going to join us to break down how it's happening and what it means for the drug business. We are just a few days away from the start of the biggest and most important biotech business meeting of the year, the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. We'll break down expectations for JPM Week, and we'll also discuss how runaway prices and the city's social ills are prompting longtime attendees to wonder if the conference should find a new host city. And speaking of J.P. Morgan, we spend plenty of time grousing about what it's like to cover the conference, but what about the people on the other side of the podium? Mike Huckman, a veteran of PR and pharma reporting, joins us to share the top 10 most egregious cliches that executives should avoid at Biotech's biggest meeting. But first, a word from our sponsor. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Cineos Health, we're changing the game. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health has one goal in mind, shortening the distance from lab to life. Visit CineosHealth.com forward slash podcast. That's S-Y-N-E-O-S health.com forward slash podcast. So let's start with the huge news that broke bright and early on Thursday morning. A mega merger on the second day of the year, Bristol-Myers Squibb uh, agreeing to buy Celgene for $74 billion in a cash and stock deal. So joining us today to talk about the implications of this deal is Matt Harper, the longtime healthcare journalist who just joined STAT. Matt, welcome to the podcast and welcome to STAT. Hey, guys. So, Matt, how big of a deal is this proposed acquisition? It's literally a big deal, Damien. This is a big deal for Celgene, obviously, which ceases to be one of biotech's bellwethers and becomes part of a large pharmaceutical company whose name is the consequence of several past mergers, Bristol Myers Squibb. But it also, for Bristol, is a repositioning. This is a company that's been about cancer immunotherapy. It's been a pioneer there. Merck has stolen a little bit of its steam. Bristol thinks that this gives it a whole new pipeline of drugs, a commercial position that is synergistic. And essentially, it seems to think that Wall Street was undervaluing Celgene and that it's getting a good buy. This is a transformative deal for both companies, however it works out. The Bristol-Myers Squibb we're going to be talking about from now on is going to be doing things that Bristol-Myers Squibb didn't do. They're going to be in blood cancer drugs. They're going to be in CAR-T, the new cancer cell therapies, and there's a bet that that's synergistic. So Adam, how does this deal compare to past mega M&A? So Rebecca, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, if you include the debt, uh, this is the biggest biotech pharma deal on record, according to Bloomberg, and that tops Pfizer's 1999 merger with Warner Lambert, and it tops Takeda's takeover of Shire from just last year. If you exclude the debt, it's the fourth largest biopharma merger, according to Evaluate. So just before we started recording this segment, Matt was on the phone with Giovanni Caforio, who's the CEO of Bristol-Myers Squibb, and will, of course, soon preside over Celgene if shareholders approve this deal. Here's what Giovanni had to say about it. When we started thinking about, you know, success going forward and the next chapter in the history of BMS, it became clear that this was 
uh, an extraordinary combination and a great opportunity. So, Adam, we've talked at length in recent months about Celgene's many problems, ranging from FDA issues to patent expirations. How should we think about this acquisition in light of those troubles? Yeah, that's a great question, Rebecca. You know, it, in some ways, it seems a little bit like a capitulation to me. You know, Celgene has had pretty much like one of the worst years ever for a large cap biotech in 2018. You know, they've had a lot of clinical and regulatory setbacks and and people, investors have worried about where the growth is going to come from, given the fact that their largest drug, Revlimid, which primarily treats multiple myeloma, is is kind of running into a patent expiration. The fact that they're basically selling themselves to Bristol kind of feels like, you know, that for a biotech company, you can only get so big and then and then you sort of topple over. And I think that has a lot of implications for the entire sector, including some of the other large cap biotechs. Adam, it won't surprise you to find out that Mark Ailes from Celgene disagrees and points out that Celgene will own about a third of this new company and says that that's a big bet on the future. Well, I wanted to zoom in on, on Mark Ailes, who's the, the CEO of Celgene a little bit. He has been the topic of a lot of debate in recent months, basically, in terms of how he handled the company. He won out in what was apparently an internal race to take over for Bob Hugan, former Celgene CEO and former New Jersey Senate candidate. And in the year plus since then, Celgene's fortunes, Adam, as you mentioned, have completely tanked. So what will be the legacy of the Mark Ailes tenure? Is it is this is selling it to Bristol for this price something that shareholders will look fondly upon, or will we consider him as maybe you know the heir to the throne who squandered the kingdom? You know, investors will look a lot more fondly on him for this than they would have if the stock hadn't recovered. Yeah, I mean, I think we see we're seeing some sell side notes out, including you know Larry Chef Porges, who basically you know if I if I was going to simplify down what he said is like look take the money and run. Basically, from beating down Celgene shareholders, this is the best possible deal that they could get, you know, better than the company just trying to rebuild itself. So this news is obviously going to have huge reverberations all over the world of biotech and cancer drug development. So big picture, what does this mean? Well, beyond companies, if you were expecting cancer drug prices to somehow come down when they've been going up and up and up for years, this is not the deal that would make that happen. This is two companies that have profited by pricing their innovative medicines at what the industry would call very high value, um, combining. Um, And that means, to some degree, less competition and potentially more pricing power. You know, and from a small and mid-cap biotech perspective, I would say, look, you know, in, in years past, Celgene and Bristol Myers Squibb would were competing against each other for partnerships and deals, licensing deals with smaller and mid-cap biotech companies. And now, now that those two companies are becoming one, that's one less bidder out there for those deals. It could hurt business development efforts within small and mid-cap biotech. The other thing to consider is that these big pharma mergers are famously not always productive for actual science and research and development. I know there's some debate over that, but the last generation of mergers, you mentioned Pfizer and Wyeth, there was also Merck and Sharing Plow, um, resulted in a lot of seemingly promising drugs getting shelved because corporate combinations mean eliminating so-called redundancies. So another interesting thing with this is how many treatments in the various pipelines of Bristol-Myers and Celgene might get deprioritized in the means of those cost synergies that both CEOs are talking up, and what effect might that have on the biotech companies that might be partnered on those therapies? Historically, mergers are almost always bad for drug research. Um, They're very bad for the labs. I'd expect Bristol to protect its research labs, which have been very productive. Um, Celgene has been doing a lot of in-licensing, 
I don't know that that's affected by this, although obviously there's going to be a lot less money to in-license um, with this big deal having happened and all this integration to do. Um, I do think that uh, that you will see projects die, but that, that often can be a good thing. Often there are there's kind of vaporware in the pipeline that, that maybe shouldn't have been being developed to begin with. So every year in the wintertime, when people are making projections from the new year, they forecast or at least guess at the potential of a mega merger like this. So now that we actually have one, I'm curious what all of you think. Does this put pressure on the likes of Amgen, Gilead, Biogen, etc. to maybe follow a similar path and cash out now instead of writing it out in independence? I mean, it's always hard to predict these kinds of deals. And obviously, these are enormously complex transactions. But I think to your point, Damien, that is a conversation that will, will will start to happen, whether it happens internally at those companies, you know, inside Gilead and Biogen and Amgen, or just by investors talking about the fact that we've done one of these mega mergers. And now what about all those companies and whether we need to see more consolidation? I think the big question isn't, does anyone want to sell? Because I think there's always a seller at the right price, especially when valuations are depressed. I think the bigger question is who wants to buy? And Bristol was probably the most obvious buyer um, in this space. And I think the question is whether someone else wants to come in and, and do a big deal. I think Viagen might well be okay with selling if there were a premium like this. Starting Monday, management teams from hundreds of biotech and pharma companies will file into the Weston St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco's Union Square District. Over four days, these executives will stride up the podiums in conference rooms, large and small, to pitch their company's investment story to crowds of Wall Street investors sitting in uncomfortably close quarters. So this is the 37th edition of what is known colloquially as JPM. It's the oldest, largest, and most consequential investor conference on the biopharma industry's calendar. With the new year still fresh, JPM is the uniquely scheduled confab where biotech and pharma executives offer their first forecasts, milestone timelines, and financial guidance for the 12 months ahead. So the three of us, along with our stat colleagues Ed Silverman and Matt Herper, will be in San Francisco to cover the conference. But before we depart, let's talk about expectations and some of the burning questions and storylines we'll be following. Adam, let's start with the big newsmakers we discussed earlier in this episode, Celgene and Bristol-Myers Squibb. Yeah, I mean, Damien, obviously, the, the, the Bristol-Celgene deal is going to dominate the conversation at J.P. Morgan this year, you know, just because the, the deal has such far-reaching effects. I mean, let's start with the fact that Celgene typically kicks off the presentations at J.P. Morgan on Monday morning. CEO Mark Alice is going to get up on that podium, and I guess he's just going to talk about why he's out of a job. And Adam, how about the other three big cap biotechs, Biogen, Amgen, and Gilead? Yeah, Rebecca, I think that, you know, I think all three of those companies are going to get some of these same questions. You know, like Celgene, you know, Biogen, Amgen, and Gilead are all sort of facing these issues with maturing products. And there's concerns about where the growth is going to come from. So, again, I think, you know, you're going to hear investors wondering or speculating or questioning whether or not, you know, we can see more consolidation in the industry. We can see some of these other large cap biotech companies also get swallowed up. And so, Damien, same question to you. What are you eager to see or hear at JPM this year? 
So I've been more focused on maybe the smaller cap and, and emerging companies. And I think one bellwether this year at JP Morgan is, is a, a company that perhaps we've belabored a little bit, and that's Moderna Therapeutics. They, of course, when last we heard from them, were talking up their broad potential and their multi-billion dollar private valuation. They've since gone public and seen that valuation cut down considerably by more than 30% in the IPO. And so their presentation at JP Morgan next week is going to be their first public appearance since what was arguably kind of a chastening experience with the market. So it'll be interesting to see what they have to share, whether they're going to share timelines for big news they may have on the horizon, or just how they're going to characterize their new life as a publicly traded company. So let's move to a discussion of this curious phenomenon whereby thousands of biotech and pharma people travel to San Francisco for J.P. Morgan, but a lot of them dread it and wish they were going someplace else. Rebecca, what is going on? Yeah, Adam, we've reached something of a tipping point for longtime JPM Week attendees. They're angry about $1,000 a night San Francisco hotel rooms, and that's on top of the city's enduring problems with homelessness and open drug use in and around the Union Square District. But Adam, your reporting suggests that moving the conference might not be an option, right? Yeah, I mean, you definitely hear people talk about, hey, why don't we have JPM Week in Las Vegas or Orlando or San Diego? But the fact is, is that, you know, the centerpiece of this whole week is the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. J.P. Morgan, the Wall Street Investment Bank, has actually signed a long-term contract with the Westin St. Francis Hotel. It goes out something like 20, 25 years. And so... They're not going anywhere. And if the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference isn't going anywhere, then that entire JPM week that we all travel out to in January, that's also not going anywhere. Seemingly everything is a transformational holy grail of a game changer endorsed by key opinion leaders with clinically meaningful optionality. But it doesn't have to be that way. Mike Huckman is a global practice leader at the PR firm W2O, and he's experienced JPM from both sides of the podium, first as a biopharma reporter at CNBC, and now in his career advising drug companies on how not to be boring. So that means he's seen the industry's addiction to jargon up close. And keeping in mind that many executives are polishing up their J.P. Morgan speeches this week, we invited Mike on the podcast to share some tips on how to keep your audience's eyes from rolling deep into their heads. Hey, Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It is great to be here with you guys. So Mike put together a Letterman-style hit list of corporate cliches that should be avoided at all costs. So Mike, let's start the countdown. What's number 10 on your JPM jargon list? Yeah, Rebecca, thanks. With all due respect to David Letterman, because I'm not going to do a good job of this, but here are today's top 10 things not to say in a J.P. Morgan healthcare conference podium presentation. Here we go. Number 10. This has the potential to be or this is a real game changer. Number nine, we are really excited about fill in the blank. How many times do you hear that word from the podium or in a Q&A breakout? Number eight, this is going to be a blockbuster. This has blockbuster potential. How many times have we heard companies, executives, put expectations way up there at that blockbuster threshold, and then what happens? Either it doesn't get across the finish line or it never comes anywhere close to that level, right? 
Well, so with that one, I would interject on behalf of those many executives now looking over their PowerPoint decks. What should you say? We all know that this is an inherently risky business. So my advice to our clients is to caveat wherever and whenever appropriate. So for example, Damien, should the data continue to be positive? Should we continue to generate results that show that this experimental therapy is potentially safe and effective and we were to secure regulatory approval? All of the medical experts in this particular field are telling us this could be a really important treatment option for the people they treat. So on a related note, Mike, your number seven on your hit list is what? Number seven. We have a robust pipeline with multiple shots on goal. So what's with the multiple shots on goal cliche? It's so common, that sports cliche. Why do we use that one? I have no idea why we use that one. It's like saying, you know, hey, if this doesn't work, don't worry about it, because we got lots of other stuff that we could try to make work if that doesn't work. So if you had your way, would we eliminate all sports cliches from uh, biopharma jargon? No. No, I think they're I think they're appropriate in certain places and times, but they just get overused. There is a sea of boring sameness at JP Morgan. And what we're trying to do is to help clients stand out in that sea of sameness by telling stories in a much more compelling, interesting, intriguing way. Okay, resuming the Letterman countdown. Mike, what's number six on your JPM jargon hit list? Number six. We have several value-creating milestones ahead of us, or instead of value-creating, insert inflection points or catalysts. Number five. Innovative. The most overused, devalued word in corporate speak and in life sciences speak. Everybody says they're innovative. And because of that, it's completely washed out. Number four, kind of a threefer here. Novel, proprietary, unique MOA. And let's just for fun, add first in class and best in class into this category. And and MOA means what, Mike? (laughs) Mechanism of action or Uh, mode of action. I'm using jargon and I shouldn't be. (laughs) We caught you, Mike. We caught you you using your own jargon. Yes, you did. Number three. I apologize, but this slide is a bit of an eye chart or so this is a really busy slide. I love that one personally. Just like the acknowledgement in front of people like, look, we could have tried harder, but uh." and maybe it's my 50 year old eyes. But like if I have to squint and like try to figure out the what's on the slide and like little tiny type, you know, it, it just drives me bonkers. So the pushback that we often get from clients is, well, that means I'm going to have four more slides. And I tell them it doesn't matter. Let's limit it to one chart per slide and eliminate the clutter and get rid of that phrase. This is a busy slide. If it's busy, unbusy it. All right, Mike, I think we're down to number two, right? Number two, our goal is to become or we are a fully integrated commercial stage biopharmaceutical company. That hits so many bingo words right there. (laughs) I also like that it suggests the possibility that some companies would go on stage and say, our goal is to really just sell this to whoever is willing to pay us right now. Like, we'd love to retire. I have a beachfront home that I'm eyeing and we don't really care. Exactly. And and as if this phrase 
were the actual measuring stick that all investors use to determine whether they're going to buy and or hold a stock. Oh, are, are you a fully integrated commercial stage biopharmaceutical company? Oh, good. Then you checked our, our box and we're going to we're going to buy your stock. Number one. Number one. Drum roll, please. The number one thing not to say in a J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference podium presentation is unmet medical need. So what's so wrong with that phrase? So much is wrong with that phrase, Rebecca. It is an FDA invented phrase. No one, Rebecca, in the outside world says, for example, I have an unmet need to take down our Christmas tree. Nobody says this in the outside world. I think the unmet medical need, that's got to be like 99.99% of presentations probably include that phrase. That's got to be the center square on the bingo card. Uh, Absolutely the center square. To the extent that I assume that people preparing these have like a text macro so they don't actually have to type U-N-M-E-T. There's just some hotkey you can hit and it'll just (laughs) plug it into sentences as you go. I think it's programmed into their brains, Damien. So, Mike, thanks again for being here and and sharing your insights with us. And uh, now we know what to listen for when we're sitting in those seats at J.P. Morgan. Let's do this again at ASCO. All right. So that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Before we go, a quick programming note. If you're going to be in San Francisco for JPM next week, you can come say hi to the three of us at two different events. On Monday, we'll be hosting a cocktail reception for Stat Plus subscribers. That'll be happening at the Workshop Cafe at 180 Montgomery Street from 4 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Then on Wednesday afternoon, we're going to be putting on a panel discussion at the Biotech Showcase Conference. That'll be about the biggest stories of the week and the year to come. That'll be happening at the Hilton San Francisco Union Square Hotel at 333 O'Farrell Street from 4.30 p.m. to 5.15 p.m. Thank you to Hyacinth Epinado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode. Where are you listening from? Ask us questions or just rant about how horribly wrong we are. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And we really do appreciate the feedback. See you next week.